We're going to hear God speak from the book of Isaiah, chapter 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servant in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew, in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall, who, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given to the, into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? 
Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, This is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. This is the Lord's word. Morning, everyone. My name is Matt Fuller, uh, if we've not met. So we're spending a, a month then just in these central chapters, uh, 36 to 39 of uh, Isaiah, uh, here in the mornings. We're jumping in, but uh, uh, I think you'll start to see today. It's uh, just immediately relevant for you and for me. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our great God and Father, thank you that you are utterly trustworthy. And while there will always be in this world voices, powerful at times, mocking you and mocking the idea of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have demonstrated you are absolutely worthy of us putting our faith in you. So help us, help us again. Speak, Father, so that we do that even this morning, this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, some will recognize this man, and we've got a photo of uh, William Joyce, uh, for your recollection. Uh, William, uh, it's a bit fuzzy, but it's that big. Uh, but William Joyce, uh, he's an Englishman, but uh, can you see who he liked? Uh, he's not just dressed up for fancy dress, inappropriately, like a member of the royal family, um, from time to time. That is um, it's 1930. Nine. William Joyce was an Englishman and um, was living in Germany, and uh, from September 1939 started broadcasting uh, from Germany Nazi propaganda every night uh, into the uh, UK. 
So every evening he'd begin his uh, uh, broadcast in a very clipped English accent, Germany calling, Germany calling uh, to the British Isles. And he would broadcast a, a mixture of some things which were accurate with a whole stash of deceit and, uh, and propaganda uh, and pump this into uh, to the UK on radios. Now, in one sense, it was quite easy for him in the early days, in the early months, September 1939, there's sort of Nazi victories across uh, Europe. Poland goes very quickly. France, of course, goes all very quickly. And so he can pump out this mixture of fact and uh, uh, propaganda saying, but Britain, you can't resist. Mr. Hitler, he's a very nice man. Why do you not make an alliance with him? Now, he was mocked, certainly by the BBC. They mocked him as Lord Haw Haw for his uh, accent. But six million Brits tuned in every day to listen to his broadcast. Some days it was as high as 18 million. He was entertaining. And certainly in 1940, 41, he it looked like he was right. And uh, so he came up with classics such as, uh, the people of England will curse themselves for having preferred ruin from Churchill to peace from Mr. Hitler. He mocked uh, Winston Churchill as, don't put your faith in that whiskey-guzzling, cigar-chomping, bovine-decadent liar. Don't put your faith in him. But the Brits had a choice, I guess. Uh, let's get rid of him. There's your choice, I guess, if you're a Brit in 1939, 40, even as late as 41. Who are you going to put your trust in? There's a mockery of Lord Haw Haw and, and the Nazi regime or, or Winston Churchill. Who are you going to put your trust in? And who are you going to do that when it appears as if the Nazi regime is sweeping all before it. It appears as if the UK will lose. Who will you put your trust in? Thanks, Sam. But that is the question then of uh, this section and really the book of Isaiah. Who will you trust? Now, we're jumping into uh, this narrative, chapters 36 to 39, uh, which is really at the hinge of the book. It is different from most of the book. The overwhelming majority of the book of Isaiah is poetry, but uh, here it's a narrative section. It's sort of highlighted. Here, here is the central event, certainly, of the whole book. Just to orientate ourselves a little bit, uh, the man that will spend a lot of time in his company is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king of Judah, uh, the southern kingdom uh, at the time of uh, God's people. He becomes king in about 715 BC. Seven years earlier, before he becomes king, he's king in the south. The northern kingdom had been destroyed by Assyria. And Assyria is the sort of regional superpower that casts a shadow over the whole book, certainly the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. We may have a little map. So um, uh, don't worry too much about the colors. The, the central bit is where Assyria springs from. But the, what do we call that? Green? The, that, is the, um, that is the extent of the empire. That is the Assyrian empire. And then just down in the corner here, you've got Judah. Tiddly-widdly Judah. There's Lashish and, and Jerusalem. So you've got this enormous shadow of Assyria 
which has swept all before it. It's, it's conquered every nation, every tribe in their area. And Judah, you're next. You're all that's left. When you're gone, we're going to Egypt. But that is the shadow over the first 39 books of, excuse me, chapters of Isaiah. So the question for them then is, what are you going to do about this threatening superpower? The, the prophet Isaiah, essentially for, for the first half of the book, has been saying, now look, the Lord is sovereign. Trust in him. Don't trust in your own wisdom. Don't panic over Assyria. Don't try and form alliances with other nations such as Egypt. They'll all let you down. Trust in him. And it really comes to a focus, these central Chapters then, 36 to 39. The question which dominates really the, the, the whole of these chapters gets asked in verse 4. So you've got Hezekiah, he's uh, Judah's king. He's the good guys, as it were. Sennacherib, he's the king of Assyria invading. And his spokesman asks this question, the field commander, verse 4 of chapter 36. This is what the great king the king of Assyria says, and here's the question, right? So this is the question that hangs over the whole book, but it's only these four chapters. Here's the question. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? Who do you trust? What do you trust? Gets asked in slightly different ways uh, throughout this. So verse five, on whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Verse six, you're, you're depending or trusting Egypt Verse 7, no, no, we're depending or trusting in the Lord our God. Or verse 15, don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust or depend upon the Lord. Whom are you trusting? Who will you trust? And uh, in this section this morning, 36 and is the first bit of 37, the, the question is, well, the question, who will you trust, is really the question of this month, okay, versus chapters 36 to 39. But here in this bit, who will you trust when your faith is mocked, that's the issue here. Who would you trust when Christianity is laughed at and mocked? Who will you trust when the taunts, the jeering rises up against you personally? Because you're thinking about the Christian faith, or you've been a Christian number of years. Who will you trust when your faith is mocked? Trust in the Lord. Let's jump in then. Uh, let's orientate ourselves a little bit more. So here we are, chapter 36. It's the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign. So we're in the year 701 BC, and uh, Sennacherib, the king of uh, Assyria, he finally invades. And it's a devastating invasion. You can go and read uh, details about it in the British Museum. They've got lots of uh, Assyrian um, uh, artifacts, uh, you can go and read them. And so you can read there. Here is Sennacherib's summary of uh, his invasion in the year 701 BC of Judah. It's recorded like this. As for uh, Hezekiah the Judean, I besieged 46 of his walled, fortified cities and surrounded smaller towns which were without number. I conquered them all. I took over 200,000 people captive young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, cattle, and sheep without number, and counted them as spoil. So chapter 36, verse 1, that's what's happened. The country's been invaded and everything has fallen. 200,000 people have been taken away 
as captives. The whole wealth of the land has been plundered. Fortified cities, okay, they're not super fortified like you might think of today, but 46 of them, gone. Lashish, the most recent one, captured. Best fortified city in the country. All gone. Nothing can withstand or hold back the threat of uh, this Sennacherib. So Hezekiah, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Okay, we're going to look at it uh, like this. There's uh, two rounds of mockery and the king's response. So it's very simple. Round one, round two, the king's response. That's how we're going to look at it, all right? Uh, Round one, round two, the king's response. Round one is chapter 36 and uh, verses 4 to 10. You get the first speech. And essentially, I guess, the, the, the mockery is you trust old words, don't you? Round one, then, uh, chapter 36, 4 to 10. Uh, verse 4, then. this is what the, uh, the great king, the king of Assyria, says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. Well, I think the point is there. What, what, what do you mean you're, you're, you're trusting empty words? You're trusting in what Isaiah has told you. They're, they're being mocked here. The commander, this field commander, the spokesman for uh, uh, the king says, well, okay, we've got the greatest army the world has ever seen assembled, and you've got a few old words from that old prophet over there. <laughs> no, seriously, that's what this battle is. The greatest army the world has seen versus the prophet and a few words. That's what you're doing. Or secondly, he says, or you're trusting Egypt, are you? Verse 6, Egypt. You've formed an alliance with Egypt. Well, Egypt is like a splintered reed of a staff. You sort of lean on it and think it'll support you, but it'll just pierce your hand and stab you in the back. Egypt's no good. Or verse 7, you're trusting your God. If you say to me, we're depending upon the Lord our God, isn't he the, the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? This is the most subtle of the taunts. Hezekiah had been a pretty good king. I mean, actually, he's one of the best kings Israel has overall. And he had removed lots of pagan altars and bad places of worship. So he's done the right thing from the Lord's perspective. But the field commander just wants to sow a little bit of doubt. It says, you're trusting your God, but haven't you got rid of loads of his altars? No, no, that's not true. Actually, Hezekiah's got rid of lots of pagan altars. But just in the popular imagination, you just sow a little bit of doubt. No, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe Hezekiah did get it wrong. And then verses 8 and 9, they're just raw mockery, really. Verse 8, come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll tell you what, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How about that? I'll give you, whatever it is, 2,000 tanks if you've got people who can drive them. I'll give you 2,000 guns if you've got people who can shoot. No? No. I'll give you resources if you can't even use them. How are you going to resist me? You're useless. 
How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you're depending upon Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Oh, in verse 10, here's a real kicker. Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord, your God, himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Do you see the sort of cumulative weight of these? If you're there listening as uh, an inhabitant of Jerusalem, you're just, look, we've got the greatest army the world's seen. You've got a few old words. Egypt, they're not coming. You're trusting your God. Well, haven't you got rid of his altars? Actually, we're doing the Lord's work. And the confidence is just chipped away. And the people sit there and think, we can't win this. We've got to go with this. For you and for me, what does it mean? Words are powerful and intimidating. There is no battle militarily recorded in these chapters. It's just a war of words, chapters 36, 37. But words can do enormous damage or good. But there's no real truth here. It's just bluster and mockery and playing on people's fears. Six million Brits listened to Lord Haw Haw. And when Nazi troops were smashing all across Europe, it's very easy to believe what he said, even though it wasn't true. This was a little while ago, uh, but um, on his website, Richard Dawkins, I, I don't know if he's still popular or not, but uh, this is just a little bit on how he thinks of such things. This was something he wrote on his website. It's public. You can go and read it. He's talking about his tactics in um, attacking Christians. He says, we should go beyond humorous ridicule. We must sharpen our barbs to a point where they really hurt. Now, give up on the irremediably religious. They'll never give up their faith. I am interested in the fence-sitters, those who have some faith. They are likely to be swayed by a display of naked contempt. No one likes to be laughed at. No one wants to be the butt of contempt. I think that's an extraordinary quote. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, look, if you... What I, my agenda is to, give people to, to get people to give up on the Christian faith in particular. I'm not going to use reason. I'm just going to mock and ridicule and laugh at and make people feel like they're idiots. Don't use reason, just abuse. Don't just do it gently. Give up upon humorous ridicule. Sharpen. Sharpen your barbs till they really hurt. That's his agenda, and that's his tactics. It's just mockery. It's not true. It's not reasoned. It's just abuse. So look, when you hear voices, I don't know where you hear them, in the, in the media, in the office, in your family, repeatedly mocking Christianity, how can you believe that ancient piffle? Really? Those old words? 
But that mockery, it has an impact upon us. You look around and think, well, maybe the taunts are true. Actually, it's very similar to the sort of taunts that come out of this passage is still said today. You, you lot are trusting in old words. You trust the Bible that was written thousands of years ago. Why would you do that? And it's quite normal. I think it's de rigueur now to, to sneer at the Christian faith. The, uh, is a few, couple of months ago, John Humphreys, he got picked up on this, but the Today presenter in the morning on Radio 4, John Humphreys introduced thought for the day. And he said, uh, we're now going to hear someone tell us that Jesus was really nice for, for a few minutes. Just, just mockery. What a waste of time. We have to endure this before we get back to me. And I'll educate you. Or last month, the actress Nicole Kidman revealed in a Vanity Fair cover story that um, she said, in Hollywood, I'm often teased or abused for being a Christian, for having Christian faith. I don't know what sort of Christian she is. But this garnered worldwide headlines. Not, isn't it bad that she gets mocked for being a Christian? But Nicole Kidman, well, we like her. She's good. She's a Christian. Oh. Oh. That's a shame. And that's why it produced the headlines. Just this sort of low-level mockery. And then the sort of the more subtle one that the field commander uses, your God, why would he listen to you when you don't do things which please him? Well, many of us can succumb to that. God won't listen to me, will he? Because I have not done the right thing. I've blown it. I've lost his love. Now look, God has promised he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. But these are the sort of comments that just, we may not hear them directly from our friends, may not hear them directly from our family or from our colleagues, but we, we sort of know that they're, they're the voices that we hear in the media, we assume, if we're a Christian, sometimes we assume that that's what people think and we're on the back foot straight away. It's just mockery. Judah's leaders, verse 11, well, they say, please stop. Then uh, Eliakim, Shebner, and Joah said to the uh, field commander, look, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. Just use, use diplomatic language. You, you speak in Latin or whatever. Um, because when you're saying all this, everyone's hearing. Yeah, yeah. That's the point of propaganda. Uh, we want everyone to hear. But do see, mockery is not reason. Taunting is not truth. Don't be thrown by it. That's round one. Round one, really, you're trusting old words and an old God. Round two, uh, it's a slightly, slightly different, I think, in verses 12 to 20, which is the resistance is futile, I guess, would be uh, one sort of summary of it. Here's round two, then. Uh, verse 12. The commander replied, well, hold on a minute. Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall? They, like you, will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine. Lovely. Um, great. Uh, again, if you're stood there listening to this, you're thinking, we can't win. We don't want that. And so what does he say? Well, verses 16 to 17, we won't go, go through everything, but verses 16 and 17, essentially he says, look, life will be easier if you cave in. 
Verse 16, commander says, look, don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a a land of bread and vineyards. And if you're listening, you think, well, this is great. If we listen to this guy, we won't be invaded and they'll take us off to better land. Uh, Rather than trying to, I don't know, grow champagne in Yorkshire, I'm going to be given, you know, land in the south of France where grapes will grow better. Well, this sounds great. Well, it's not true. That's not what Assyria did. Yeah, look, come with us and look, we put you in a sort of nice, better houses and and, and nice... No, it's forced expatriation. It's taken off into slavery. It's not benevolent in any sense. He's just not telling the truth. But it has some traction. You're stood there listening. If you resist Assyria, you're going to eat excrement and drink urine. Or you can run with it and you'll get better food and nicer wine. Well, you're sat here this morning. Which would you prefer to have for lunch? Your own direct produce or much better produce, which would you prefer to be consuming? It has some traction, doesn't it, to you? Essentially, he's saying, or what it would look like today, I guess, is it's a bit like you'll have more fun if you give up on Christianity. It's just more enjoyable living a life without God is the argument, really. It's what the world says. Don't listen to Jesus. Come and have fun with us. You'll have much more pleasure. It's not true. And then verses 18 to 20 really is, resistance is pointless. Uh, Others have said they can resist me, but um, they never can. Verse 18, do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any other nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Nope. What about um, the gods of Hamath and Arpad and the gods of Seraphim? Nope. All those countries destroyed and their gods melted down and turned into other things. All gone. Can't win. Resistance is futile. The Lord won't protect you. Give up. And again, I think it's sort of It's sort of the voice of humanism in the 21st century. I've been slowly, I haven't found it an epic read actually, I've been slowly reading uh, Homo Deus, you know, uh, Yuval uh, Noah Harari's book, uh, Homo Deus, Divine Man. The argument, many of you know this, he says, actually, we've come so far as humans. We've made such progress. And we're now just going to break through into a whole new era of a great new age of extraordinary extraordinary development. We're going to conquer suffering. We're going to conquer hunger, disease, death through technology. We're almost there, almost to the point where we do become gods because we can control everything. And you think, well, it's quite hot this week. We're not doing so well at controlling the air conditioning in the office. But anyway, uh, those are, uh, but that's, that's the voice. It, it is a popular book. And why wouldn't it be? Because he's saying to a world eager to hear it, you are all brilliant, and you're all godlike, and we will conquer everything. 
and resistance to the onslaught of humanism is futile. Well, we'll see. History would teach us to be a little slower in embracing that hubris. Very famously, in 1956, the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev said, whether you like it or not, history is on our side and we will bury you. So a room of journalists assembled at a United Nations meeting. And he says to all the Western journalists, whether you like it or not, history is on our side and we will bury you. Said with enormous confidence in 1956. And 30 years later, history had not been on their side. And the Soviet Union had not buried the Western democracies. But at the time, 56, quite easy to feel confident. But see, it's, such a, it's a cry so often used. You can't resist us. You can't resist the flow of history. Lord Hawhorse said, history is on the side of Hitler. Nope. Khrushchev said, history is on the side of Soviet Russia. Nope. Yuval Noah Harari says, history is on the side of secular man. Nope. It's often used, but it's just bluster. Who will you trust? So you get those two rounds then of, um, of mockery, really. You're, you're trusting old words and resistance is futile. Then lastly, let's look at the king's response. Just in, into chapter 37 and really verses 1 to 5. The king's response. Well, they, 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 his advisors come to him. End of chapter 36. This sometimes is a wise thing to do. Chapter 36, um, verse 21. The people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Well, sometimes it's quite a sensible thing to do when you're being mocked. Just say nothing, just walk away. But um, verse 22, then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, Joah, the son of Asaph, they went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. And what does the king do? Chapter 37. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, always a sign of distress, grief, and also repentance. He put on sackcloth. He went to the temple of the Lord. Gets it very right. He goes to the temple and he prays. And verse 2, he sent Alakim, the, the, the palace administrator, these guys, all wearing sackcloth. He says, go and speak to Isaiah, son of Amos, see what he says. Verse 3, they told Isaiah, this is what Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the moment of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. Golly, it may be that the Lord, it may be, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke them for the words the Lord your God has heard. Isaiah, maybe God's going to do something about this. It seems a bit weak, doesn't it? Maybe. But, well, they had been pretty faithless. They had compromised. They had tried to buy off Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, before this point. So it may be they think from our side we've not done so well. But God has promised that there'll always be a king on the throne. So you can trust him. So Hezekiah does well. He prays. 
And he says, Isaiah, can you give us another word from the Lord? Can you just reassure us that we can trust him? He does right. Hezekiah is a good king in Israel's history. Gets sort of more chapters devoted to him, apart from David and Solomon. He's sort of number three in the list, and he's a good king. But he's not perfect. We'll see that in a couple of weeks' time. But here, I think he does for us foreshadow a better king. Hezekiah withstands the mockery and responds with faith. So in Luke chapter 4, you get the better king, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in the wilderness, 40 days. He's been there without food. He's besieged by the devil, and he listens to some very compelling arguments. If your God turns stones to bread, angels will catch you if you throw yourself off this mountain. Resistance is futile. Why didn't you bow down and worship me? They're compelling arguments that are put to Jesus by the devil. And you could easily have said to Jesus in 33 AD, as he was on trial in a Roman court, and then convicted to death by crucifixion, Jesus, you're on the wrong side of history, and we will bury you. But he said, yes, I know, but I will rise. Because I don't trust you. I trust in God my Father. Easy to say to Jesus, look, life will be easier if you caved in. Stop saying your God resistance to the Roman regime is futile. But when you ask Jesus, who will you trust? He says, I trust my Father. And he was right. And the mockers were wrong. He rose, he reigns, he'll return. You can trust him. Hezekiah just, we'll see again in next week, he keeps pointing us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he does get a word from Isaiah. Last thing as we finish, Isaiah said to them, verse 6, okay, tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Don't be afraid of what you've heard, these words which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed. Listen, here's what's going to happen. Uh, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, is going to hear a certain report. He'll return to his own country, and when he goes to his own country, he'll die. He'll be cut down with the sword. And verse 8, the field commander heard. This is exactly what had happened. The king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he left Lashish, he withdrew, and he went elsewhere. It's a very strange little conclusion, really. You get all these words, all these taunting words of mockery. Why would you trust the Lord? Why did you give in? Why would you trust all these old words in your scriptures and words of a prophet? You get it? And then God says, no, don't worry about it. He'll hear a word from me and he'll leave. But it happens all very quickly. For you and me, when life is complicated and hard, it is enormously easy to listen to reasons why we cannot trust in God. It's very easy to listen to voices which mock and taunt. And they may be loud. And they may go on and on. And they may seem very powerful. But the Lord says, no, it's all in my hand, and when I choose, it'll all end. Whom do you trust? These words that Isaiah speaks, they're not empty words. And his whole book, 
these are not empty words. These are words spoken by the God who entered into history in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was taunted? Who was mocked? Who was killed? But who was right? And he rose, and he reigns, and he'll return. And you can trust him. So don't listen to the voices that mock. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, there is not one sentence in the Scriptures promised which has not been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ or will not be when he returns. Father, there are so many promises in your word that we see fulfilled. We can trust you. We can trust you not because you're just one who speaks, but because you're one who acts, who has entered into history in the most trustworthy man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and has demonstrated your concern, your truth for this world. Father, in a world where the Christian faith will often be mocked and laughed at and ridiculed, and we may feel that acutely, we may hear it from people directly, we may assume it's what people are saying about us, would we know that these are not reason to arguments? It's just bluster and laughter and mockery. Would we trust your unchanging promises? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.